Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. Thank you so much. That's actually really fitting because I've totally changed what I want to share on this morning. Um, uh, because it's actually how Pete um, kicked us off is something that I would love for us to focus on today. And um, we're in this theme here in Market Harbour about walking this way. That's right. Does that sound familiar? Like four Sundays now, I've listened back and really enjoyed hearing what Phil has shared and, and Stephen and Benj have shared on, on walking this way, walking in a way that honors Jesus and expresses and extends the kingdom of God. Is that kind of a fair summary? And, um, and this morning, I just want to talk about uh, how God reveals himself. And one of the characteristics, one of the attributes that God wants us to understand about himself that I would like to focus on today that maybe we don't talk about uh, too often. But if, if you were to describe to somebody who's maybe not a Christian, or maybe they are a Christian, and they said, well, what is God like? What is God like? Okay, because God is spirit, the Bible tells us. We know God is love and God is like those three God is statements that John gives us. But those are kind of a little bit out there. They're a bit, could easily be a little bit hypothetical or quite difficult to grasp, especially God is spirit. So how can we know what God is like? Throw any, anything out that kind of reveals what God is like. Add a little hint from creation. Just as Susan mentioned this morning, that creation reveals the nature of God. That God is vast, because creation is vast, isn't it? The universe is vast, the stars. The only constellation I know is Orion. And I feel so knowledgeable when I see Orion in the sky. I saw him the other day and I felt good about my, my understanding of, <laughs> of stars. But, but we recognize that we are really tiny and the universe is seemingly massive. Well, it is massive and yet it's within God. And then you kind of bring it right down to the human body. And as Susan described, the body's ability to withstand orthopedic carpentry is essentially what happens. When somebody has a hip replacement, they are brutal, these guys. These are trained to be nasty. They're saws and hammers and all sorts of stuff and cement. And I've never heard anybody using a scab to glorify God, but I love that. <clears throat> Creation reveals the glory of God. I worked as a physiotherapist for a number of years, and I think I might have said this before, but a hand surgeon came in to talk to us as physios and Describe the, the intricacies of the hand and the tendons of the hand and how difficult it is to repair tendons when they've been severed because of how the hand has been put together to give us this incredible dexterity. And at the end of him talking about all of this stuff, and we'd studied hand anatomy before, but one of my fellow colleagues came to me at the end. She said, you're a Christian, aren't you? I said, yeah, absolutely. She said, when he was talking about the, the, uh, the kind of the amazing complexity of the hand, she just thought, there must be a God, mustn't there? Isn't that amazing? That in creation, God reveals himself to us. The heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1.20 says God's invisible qualities are seen and evidenced in creation, the physical things that we've seen around us. And this is the fallen version. This is the sin-tainted version. This is the cursed version. Imagine what it's like when it's all glorified and renewed when Jesus returns finally and everything is restored back to God's original intention. Isn't that amazing? This is just like the, this is before it kind of went to uh, HDMI cable enabled or 4K or whatever the new K is now. This is the black and white version on a little tally. So creation reveals the glory. Anything else reveals God's nature to us? Faithfulness expressed in how we treat one another. 
So it's an attribute of God that we see, but we see that often expressed in relationships, don't we? That we see that in one another, what God is like, because we're made in the image of God. So God is faithful, but we express that just like our consciences reveal to us that some things are not okay. Some things are good and some things are bad. Some things deserve punishment and some things are okay. And, and there's within humanity, this sense of right and wrong. That's sort of hardwired to us. That reveals God to us, that we're made in his image. Again, tainted and fallen, but the image is still there. And when we're born again and born from above and the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, then that's renewed and refreshed and we're new creations, but there's still, we're not perfect. Apart from Stephen and Mandy, we're not perfect. We're working our way towards glory in creation, in conscience, in history. But throughout the world, throughout time, there's been this desire in every culture, every nation to honor someone or something that's bigger than us. Again, hardwired to worship, to try and find something that's bigger or greater than us. And of course, that's God wanting us to search and know that there's a sense of eternity in our hearts that's not fulfilled until we meet the God of eternity. And then our experience. Who here has experienced the goodness of God in your life? For a long time, you might have put it down to luck. Or, you know, the big guy in the sky or cosmic ordering or the universe or all that nonsense. But we know that God has done amazing things in our lives. And, 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 and as we look back, sometimes we begin to tally it and think, hang on a minute. And maybe that's where we came to faith because we just saw God's hand in our lives. And we thought, God, you are real. I, I've, I've seen it in my own life. I've experienced it. And of course, the Bible reveals to us perfectly and wonderfully what God is like. But the ultimate way that God reveals himself to us is how, through whom? Jesus is always the right answer, isn't he? Jesus came to reveal God to us. God put on flesh so that we could, as you described, as Pete started the meeting this morning, we could see him with our own eyes. We could touch him with our own hands. Isn't that amazing? God made himself known through Jesus Christ. And in John, uh, John 1, the gospel of John, says this in John 1, 17, the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. It says this, no one has ever seen God. Spirit, he's invisible. But the unique one, this is Jesus now, who is God himself, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. It's done. You want to know what God is like? There are four beautiful books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll see exactly what God is like. His character, his nature, the attributes and his characteristics, his faithfulness, as Andrew just mentioned. And, and one of the things that I want to look at today and see how God has revealed himself to us is that God is a God of joy. God is a God of gladness. God has an amazing sense of humor. Can you, we would not have a sense of humor if the image maker hadn't borne it into us. God is a God of joy. God is a God of gladness and God has a sense of humor. And that's what, one of the things I want to look at today. And that's why you started this morning with that word joy. And I just thought we need to look at joy together today because there's something that we sometimes miss and we think, oh, we should be joyful. But actually, we forget God is joyful. And Jesus exuded joy. Absolutely exuded 
joy. If you just turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 1 for a moment, because I just want us to read a, a couple of verses. Hebrews 1 verse 3 firstly, and then we'll jump into Hebrews 1 verse 9. But Hebrews 1 verse 3 just kind of um, adds to what I've already said about Jesus revealing God's nature to us. Listen to these words. Hebrews 1 verse 3. The Son, this is Jesus, radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. Wow. He expresses the very character of God. Oh, and by the way, he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. He's Alpha, he's Omega, he's the beginning, he's the end. When he cleanses from our sins, he sat down on the, uh, at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. That's Jesus. And he's come to reveal God to us. And it says this in Hebrews 1 verse 9 about Jesus again. You love justice and hate evil. Therefore, O oh God, your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of religiousness. Pouring out the oil of super holiness. Pouring out the oil of I'm better than you are-ness. No, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than anyone else. And this word joy, right? This is, this is joy on steroids. Okay, this is, this is as joyful as you, this is extreme joy. It's not like, yay, it's yes, joy. When, when whales score a try, when it actually happens, <laughs> that's just a fraction of the joy that we're talking about here. And I feel glad, I feel joyful when that happens. I, I can barely remember what it's like, but. And I was just thinking, you know, he was anointed with joy. I believe he was anointed from that moment he was conceived, that he was anointed with joy. And Jesus wants to express the joy of God to us because that's how he lived. In fact, even just think about the nativity, think about his birth. It is a story that is packed with joy. Mary is pregnant. She walks into Elizabeth's house because then she says, hi, Elizabeth, it's me. And as soon as Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, what happens to baby John in Elizabeth's belly? He jumps with joy. The joy bringer had come into the room and John, the prophet who was pointing to the joy bringer says, he's here. This is a baby in a womb. But there's this extreme joy that is presented and, and then the, the wise men come and they, they encounter Jesus and they bring, they, as soon as they see him, they're filled with joy. And they, they can't wait to give him all of these amazing gifts because they've seen the ultimate gift. And then the shepherds hear the angels and the angels say, we've got good news of great Joy, 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 joy. Mary, when she receives the news, the Magnificent, her song is all about joy. But even at his birth, there's joy. How much more so at the end of his mission, once he died on the cross, buried, rose again, ascended to the Father, everything's finished. He sits down at the right hand of the Father, joy. And so I believe God wants us to understand and know this joy in a fresh and a new way, to restore to us the joy of our salvation to know that he, uh, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And for us to really understand that that is not just us getting joy, but it's coming to God who's the source of joy. You know, there's multiple times in our Bibles where I think we miss the humor. It's easy to miss. Okay, because it's like when you get an email or a text message. There's no context, is there? You just get the written words and you, you kind of interpret it as you read it. And as soon as somebody uses caps, they're shouting at you. As soon as they use italics, obviously that's a bit more important or whatever it is or underline. 
And we try and interpret things. And, and as wonderful as the Bible is and, 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 and incredible and life-giving it is, we still sometimes need the help of the Holy Spirit to see a little bit more into the, the stories and everything that's happened, to read it with a real sense of, I want to know what's going on here. I'd love to know the intonation of Jesus' voice because from you foolish people to you foolish people, it's a big difference, isn't there? And I believe Jesus was more the second version, particularly when he's talking to his disciples and we get there in a moment. But, but the Bible talks about God laughing. In Psalms, there's a lot of God laughing. Psalm 2 verse 4, Psalm 37, verses 12 to 13, Psalm 58. And generally what he's doing is he's laughing at rulers and kings who are trying to rebel against him and they're shaking their fists and they're gnashing their teeth. And it's like you go for a walk and then you see an ant and you're about to tread on him. The ant gets angry and starts lifts one of its legs and starts going like that to you. And you're not scared, are you? You're just going to go, aww. Aww. Yeah, we don't need to be afraid of world leaders. God looks at me and goes, oh, you think you can like knock my plan off? Of course. Bless your heart. Oh, he laughs. And, and he's just looking and thinking, and we need to understand, we take things seriously in the world, but let's not be fearful. God's not fearful. He looks at these people and he laughs. What are you trying to do? Trying to trip me up with one of your tiny legs. I'll squash you. And there's this, there's these stories in the Old Testament just reveal, I'll use this word reverently, a cheekiness. The Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God in 1 Samuel 5, is taken by the Philistines, Israel's mortal enemy. And where do they put it? They're going to put it in the temple of Dagon, their fish god, okay? Their super fish god. Of all the gods, you choose a fish god. More fool you. I know you live by the coast, but be more creative. And they put him in the temple. Uh, and then the next morning, they close the doors. Next morning, they come back. And what's happened? Their god, Dagon's statue, is lying face down. And the Ark of the Covenant is just there. And Dagon, on his face. I think God loved that. I think he had a little chuckle to himself. Well, there's three of them. They chuckled amongst themselves. And then they bring it back up. And they close the doors. You know, they brush Dagon down and they, they leave. And the next day they come back. And now what's happened? He's face down. His head has popped off and his arms are off. We can't just brush him down. We've got to glue him back together. Let's get rid of this. Ah, oh, can they send it off with these two heifers? pulling a cart with all sorts of random golden tumors and rats. And, but God is like looking and he's, I think God just finds that funny. I think God found it funny when Jacob had tricked his father into blessing the wrong son and God tricked him into marrying the wrong daughter of the wrong. God, God is having a lot. You thought you were going to get Rachel? No, you get Leah. See what I did there? You tricked and you conned. Well, now you're going to get tricked and you're going to get conned. It's funny. And Jesus exemplifies this. You know, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, there's a time to laugh. There's a time to cry. Of course there is. But for us to understand that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And um, Jesus, when he spoke, was, there's lots of hyperbole, which was a way of communicating humor, taking something and, and being over the top about it to, to drive home a point and to be humorous. So that when Jesus talks about this, don't try and take this bit of sawdust out of your brother's eye when you've got a whopping log sticking out of your eye. And people could imagine this, like the old slapstick films of the guys with the plank of wood. They're turning around and smacking somebody on the head. And it's like, you're trying to get the speck out of my eye and you're just hitting me with a log that's in your eye. Or Jesus says, you ask your father for a fish and he gives you what? A snake. You ask him for some bread, you get an egg and he gives you a scorpion. And this would have been funny to those listening because it's just ludicrous. 
Jesus says to the Pharisees, you, you, you strain at a gnat, and next thing you know, you're swallowing a camel. And again, it's just, and, and it was a play on words, Aramaic, gamla and galma were the words for camel and gnat. And Jesus is using wordplay and imagery and hyperbole to be funny, to be humorous. To, and, and why? Because he's showing us what God is like. I'm glad that God is a God of joy and gladness. I'm glad that Pete started there this morning with us. I'm glad that the, the testimonies that came expressed that, that when Andrew saw God in this vision of him being a three or four-year-old boy, what was, God, what was God's facial expression? Smile. Love that. He smiles. He looks at us with joy. He looks at us with gladness because we're made. We're his children. He loves us. Sometimes we think he's so serious. And yes, we take God seriously. Please understand. I'm not saying God isn't holy and he isn't sovereign and he isn't awesome and he isn't mighty, but why oh, he's fun. He's joyful. And, and there's a little story I would just like us to look at. And, and it's a story that if you know the Bible, you might know this. It might be a brand, this might be brand new to you. I don't know. But I just want us to Read this story in, in Luke 24. So if you turn in your Bibles to Luke 24, it's the story of this walk. It's like a half, it's a holy half marathon, okay? It's seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus and seven miles back. It's a half marathon with a cheeky little bit extra added on at the end. And these disciples essentially do this route in one day, okay? So if you want to serve God and be part of his kingdom, you need to be fit. I'm just going to put it out there. Because he might have you walking back seven miles after you just walked out seven miles. And... Um, just to read this story with a, this, this background understanding of God having a sense of humor, Jesus representing that, and, and having fun, okay? And, and, and also, this is the context. Jesus has suffered. He has gone to the cross. He's been through the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows he's been betrayed. He sweated blood at the pressure of knowing what was coming next. He endured the ultimate um, separation and, and bore sin for us, became sin and went down into the grave and then took the keys from, of sin and death and, and led a train of captives out. And now he's risen again, okay? And it's like that thing where you know you've got something really big coming up and you don't want to do it, but you know you have to do it. You do it, you do it really well and you come out the other end. How do you feel? Yes, all right my A-levels and I got my, my four Ds. I'm fine. <laughs> Jesus smashed it. Okay? Jesus got A-stars and everything. And he'd done it and it's behind him now. And I can just imagine him in his resurrected body with more than a bit of a spring in his step. Does that make sense? That's the context. Okay? So he's the only one who knows this stuff's happened. All right? So verse uh, 13 of Luke 24 says, that same day, Two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. I, I, the click isn't in my Bible. But, but Jesus just suddenly appeared next to them. Now, they didn't notice that he'd done that yet, okay? But I think he, had, I think he enjoyed that. Just suddenly appeared and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him, right? These two questions, he's having fun. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you're walking? Did he know? Of course he knew, but he's having a bit of fun. And so they stopped short and sadness 
is written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here in the last few days. Come on, Jesus' next question. What things? He knows exactly what things. He's having fun. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people, but our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We'd hoped that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at the tomb early this morning and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing and that they'd seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. And some of our men ran out to sea and sure enough, his body was gone just as the women had said. And yet they're still sad. They didn't believe the report of the women. More fool them. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe that all the prophets, uh, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Now, this is a teaching series I want. Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And by this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Listen to this. Jesus acted as if he were going on. He's being cheeky again. And I just remembered that that, that, that little phrase, Jesus acted as if he was going on, took me back to a story that happens to the disciples earlier. In Mark 6, context is that Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. And he says, right guys, you go off to the other side of the lake. I'm just going to wave everybody goodbye, make sure they know to go that way. And then I'm going to go and pray. And, and sure enough, everybody's sent off. The disciples go off in the boat. Jesus goes up to the mountain. And then in the early hours, Jesus looks out, there's a storm and he sees his disciples in a boat, panicking, straining at the oars. And what does he think? I'll go down and I'll have a look. And so he walks down and the disciples are like, we're going to drown, we're going to die. These are experienced fishermen. And Jesus is, <laughs> and it says this, and it, he looked like he was about to walk by. Exactly the same. He looked like he was about to walk on by. And then they, they see him and they say, it's a ghost. And then Jesus just says this, peace. He steps into the boat and everything is calm. And peace comes. Well, guess what happens here? Jesus looks like he's walking by. These guys are in a storm, a storm of confusion, a storm of disappointment. We'd pinned all of our hopes on this Jesus of Nazareth and our religious leaders killed him and we're, we're gonna die, help, what's going on? And then they say this, they invite Jesus in as if Jesus was invited into the boat. Now he's invited into their house. <coughs> Jesus is acting like he's going on, but he's not going on. He's waiting for them to invite him. He's got a glint in his eye as he hears them say, come in, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home to eat with them. And as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. Come on, that's funny. That is funny. If you could pull that trick, you would do that, wouldn't you? It's Jesus. Where's Jesus gone? Jesus is somewhere else having a bit of a chuckle, I think. Weren't expecting that, were you guys? They realized, they said to each other, 
didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. So remember, it's a seven-mile walk. It's getting dark when they asked Jesus to come in. They prepare some food. It's probably like half seven, eight o'clock, half eight. Jesus starts to break the bread that they take. Nine o'clock, maybe he's, he's there and he's all of a sudden disappeared and they got to make a seven-mile journey back. There was a lot quicker going back to Jerusalem than it was going to Emmaus, I can tell you that. These guys had a spring in their step now. These guys now had joy because they'd met the joy giver. They'd seen him. They'd encountered him. They, and they, they, their hearts are burning within them. And within the hour, they're on their way back to Jerusalem. And they found the other 11 disciples and the others who'd gathered with them who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. Now, in this, um, little, part, this little meeting of the disciples after Jesus' resurrection, there's a parallel story in, in John 20. So if you just turn to John 20, verse 19, this is the same little get-together of the disciples after Jesus' resurrection. It's a Sunday evening. We know that that's the case. And in John 19, verse 20, it said, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting where? Anybody got that verse? They were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Okay, so they're in a locked room all together. And verse 35, back to Luke 24, Luke 24, 35. The two disciples or the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them and they were walking along the road and they recognized him as he broke bread. And just as they were telling about it, what happens? Jesus suddenly appears in a locked room. Did he knock the door? Did he warm them up? No, he freaks them out because he's having fun. Like, it's me, I'm here. There are lots of benefits to the resurrected body, I'm telling you now. One is you can like freak your friends out. They think they're in a locked room. They are in a locked room and Jesus appears and they say this, it's a ghost. He's doing the ghost trick again. He was walking on the water. They thought he was a ghost. Now he appears in the room. They think that he's a ghost. And Jesus again says this, these words. Verse 30, end of verse 36, he's suddenly standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. The whole group was startled and frightened, think they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. He knows. <laughs> Why are you, you filled? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands, look at my feet, and you can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see that I do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet, and they were still there in disbelief, filled with, if anybody's there with me, filled with joy and wonder. And then he asked them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of grilled fish. And, they, and as he ate it, they watched. It's a funny story. Jesus had just appeared in a locked room with his freaked out disciples, tells them to be, and then they get, ask, he asks for some food. And as he's there eating his fish, all the disciples are like, it's really him. Not only can you appear in locked rooms and suddenly appear somewhere and suddenly disappear, you still get to eat. Praise God for resurrected bodies. I can't wait to get mine. And Jesus is there and he's, and he's, 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 he's eating this fish with them. And I, I was just reminded, if you go back to just the end of John, as I just close on this, um, this, this, this message this morning. But John 21 Jesus is eating fish with his disciples in the locked room. And then I don't know how long uh, after this is, but in John 21, um, the disciples still seem a little bit uh, 
listless and lacking direction. They quite, don't quite know what to do next. And Peter says, well, let's just go back and do what we, we did before. Let's go fishing. And so off they go. They take their boats out. Um, and at dawn in, in John 21, Jesus was standing on the beach. Uh, this, is, uh, this is one of, oh, goodness, there's so many beautiful images of Jesus. But for me, this just is such a beautiful picture of who our God is, who Jesus is. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. They still haven't quite worked out that it's him. And he called out, this is in verse five, called out, what do you have in your Bibles? Jesus called out, fellows, friends, children. One of the phrases he might well have used was, little boys, (laughs) little boys. Because they're just, I just think he's having a bit of fun with them. Little boys, have you caught any fish? Does he know they haven't caught any fish? Yeah, he's having fun with them. No, they replied. And throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. And so they did, and they couldn't haul the net in because there were so many fish. They were straining at oars. Now they're straining at a net. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And Simon Peter heard that and he, he, he put on his tunic, he stripped off for work, he took it off and he jumped into the water and he headed to the shore. The others stayed in the boat to bring the fish in. And then when they got there, what is Jesus doing? They found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Isn't that beautiful? And that smell of charcoal would have hit Simon Peter's nose. And smells are so powerful for memories, aren't they? And he would remember the last time that he was at the charcoal fire when he was standing outside Jesus denying that he even knew him. And now he's met with the smell of a charcoal fire and this is the resurrected Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? Is he chastising him? Is he waiting with his arms crossed, ready to take him down a peg or two? He's waiting there with a barbecue. He's about to just share breakfast with him. And it's in this context that then he restores, Peter, do you, do you love me? And Peter's like, oh, no, I I love for you is not as strong as it should be. I don't, I don't agape you, I filio you. Do you agape me? Lord, you know I don't agape you, I filio you. Do you filio me? Yes, Lord, I filio you. But know this, you're going to go somewhere you don't want to go. You're going to die for me. You're going to prove that you do agape me. You're going to get there, Peter. He's beautifully restored in this chapter. Again, Jesus is there and I can just imagine the warmth and the joy and the gladness and the love of Jesus that reveals to us the very heart and the nature of God. We turn just to Zephaniah 3. There's, when Andrew shared this story, uh, there's this picture that he had this morning. I, I was just reminded of this beautiful prophetic statement in Zephaniah. Sorry, it's a tricky one to ask you to find any of the minor prophets. You're just kind of flicking around. It's like, oh, there's Amos again. But um, <laughs> Zephaniah, Zephaniah 3, verse 16. David, David shared, didn't he, a few weeks ago on us being Zion. And I uh, said, on that day, Zephaniah 3, 16, on that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid. This is the New Living Translation I'm reading for this morning, by the way, just in case you're wondering. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty savior. What did Andrew say this morning? A smile. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. That's our God. 
That's our God. Jesus revealed the joy and the gladness of God. Number six, the priestly blessing. May the Lord smile on you. He lifts his countenance towards us. He's, he's beaming towards us. Romans 14, 7, the kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating or drinking. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's walking this way. It's, it's, a, it's a way of joy. And joy isn't about circumstances. Joy isn't about the external effect in the internal. Joy is a state within that the Holy Spirit brings as part of the fruit of the Spirit that defines us no matter what's going on around us, that you're anointed with joy, that we're anointed with joy because it's the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus giving him his source of joy that is the Spirit that gives us our source of joy. And for us to know the joy of the Lord is our strength. The world is seriously lacking authentic joy. In fact, it can't know authentic joy, authentic joy unless it knows the one who's brought joy, the one who is the source of joy. And for us as believers, just to encourage us this morning and uh, to know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. God is a God of joy and gladness and that he wants us to live our lives defined by joy. I'd just like to pray for us and close there if that's okay. But uh, Lord, I just want to thank you for the beautiful example of how you've revealed yourself perfectly to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for doing that. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you want to reveal to us just what Jesus is like, that you can bring that revelation to us. And I pray that as we looked at the scriptures this morning, that we see that. And this morning as well, above just seeing it, that we'd know a fresh sense of joy in our hearts. That for some, that maybe we've walked with you for many years, that you'd restore to us the joy of our salvation, Lord. That we'd have a fresh dose, Lord, a fresh dollop of joy, Lord, that will cause us to have a spring in our step, cause us to walk, Lord, in a way where our heads are held high, Lord, not with pride or arrogance, but just knowing that our confidence is in you and you are the source of our joy no matter what is going on around us. Pray for sustaining joy for those of us who are going through genuinely challenging and difficult times right now. Lord, I ask that your joy would fill us and sustain us, that we'd know a fresh anointing, an impartation of your Holy Spirit for that. And Lord, that we would bring joy to those around us who are suffering at this time and struggling, those who don't know you. Lord, let us be a source of joy to them, I pray, that we'll reveal you to them through our interactions by your Holy Spirit. For your glory, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.